Welcome. You are listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's better to hear it live, this is a place to catch the latest sermon, conversation, and select program. If you like what you're hearing or want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a notification for our next episode. Enjoy and see you in shul. Earlier this week, together with many of you and together with over 10,000 other New Yorkers, I attended a vigil marking 30 days since the horrific October 7th Hamas terror attacks on Israel. The language that was used by the organizers was that of shloshim, the 30 days of mourning prescribed by Jewish law in the face of loss. The language is not perfect, but as we position and reposition ourselves vis-a-vis the attacks of October 7th, the laws of Jewish mourning are as helpful a scaffolding as any to make sense of our changed and changing reality. Because as anyone who has suffered the loss of a loved one knows, there are ritualized phases to Jewish mourning. First, between death and burial, a stage called aninut, so acute is the pain that words themselves fail. One does not recite Kaddish before burial, nor does one formally receive visitors. One does very little other than absorb the blow and make preparations for the burial of a loved one. Shiva counts the seven days of mourning following burial. Here, one accepts condolence words of consolation. Here, one begins to share memories of a loved one. We come together for minion in our homes. Community members may offer empathy by way of words of empathy or sharing rugula. Only on the seventh day do we physically get up from Shiva to resume any semblance of daily life. The next phase is noted as Shloshim, the 30 days. We're still mournful. We may go to work, but we don't attend non-essential social events. It's still too early for discretionary entertainments. And then the year of Avelut, of mourning. For a parent, we might say Kaddish for 11 months, a somber period concluding often with a stone setting. And then, of course, the yard site remembrance in every subsequent year. And while I'll readily admit that there are a lot of things in Jewish law and life that don't immediately make sense, in the case of mourning, the rabbis of old got it right. Our mourning rituals provide the mourner the tools to journey through the emotional phases of grief, from shock to anger, grief eventually to acceptance and a return to life. The rituals don't take a person's pain away. In all my years of being rabbi, not one person has ever said to me they've gotten over a loss. People just figure it out by way of the stages of mourning, how to put one foot ahead of the other. We remember, but we step forward. The ache remains, but we plan nevertheless for our future. We need look no further than today's Torah reading with our patriarch Abraham. His life partner Sarah has died. He purchases a burial plot. He mourns his wife and then 
he sets a plan in motion to find a wife for his son Isaac. Loss and life, mourning even as he turns to the generations to come. The model of Abraham's mourning becomes the model for all Jewish mourning to this very day, all the more so today, as we, we a people, seek to process a loss of some 1,400 brothers and sisters murdered on October 7th. This morning, it is by way of the laws of mourning that I want to approach the delicate task of speaking of our present pain, even as we, like any mourner, look to the future. The image isn't a perfect one. Unlike the passing of a relative, our loss is not situated on any one day. We're still at war. There are still over 240 children, women, men, elderly and infirm being held captive by Hamas. There is an evolving and growing presence of anti-Semitism on our campuses, schools, and streets. Our mourning is for October 7th, but it's also a continuing, unfolding, and in some cases, escalating grief. And yet, as did Abraham, we must speak of the day to come, build a vocabulary for our future, talk about the next stage and the next stage and the one after that. But because I'm a rabbi and not a political scientist, my reflections will come by way of the Torah reading, a Torah reading which, in speaking of Isaac and Ishmael, the forefathers of the Jewish and Arab people, serve to highlight some of our present-day fault lines and perhaps a constructive way to think about our future. The story of our first family begins simply enough. Abraham and Sarah, plucked from obscurity by God, commanded to give life to a people, be a blessing to all, and settle in a land that we here in this room call Israel. But like the Garden of Eden, like so many biblical stories, the plan that they thought would be so simple turns out not to be as simple as seems. Sarah, it turns out, is barren. She can't bear children. Who will receive the blessing? Who will inherit the land? The promise must be fulfilled. So Sarah finds a concubine for Abraham, Hagar, a woman whose name literally means Hagar, the stranger. It would be by Hagar's womb that the pedigree of the first family would be preserved. And soon enough, Hagar gives birth to a son, Ishmael. And while everyone enters the arrangement with best of intentions, the sting, for reasons all too human, is too much for Sarah to bear. Even when Sarah herself is blessed with a son, Isaac, the tensions still mount. In Ishmael, Sarah sees a threat to her son, Isaac, physically, and also in that his continued presence presents a challenge to Isaac's claim to the land. As for Hagar, in Isaac, she sees the promise that was once destined for her son Ishmael slip away. Things come to a head, and at Sarah's behest, Hagar and Ishmael are banished from Abraham's home, their lives saved from certain death by way of the intercession of a well-timed angel and the appearance of a life-giving well of water, in Hebrew what's called a be'er. There is no record of Abraham and Ishmael ever speaking again. Their relationship, understandably, 
would never be the same. As for the remaining members of our first family, Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac, even with Hagar and Ishmael out of the way, things still go from bad to worse. The same Abraham who last week pleaded on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, who two weeks ago put himself on the line to save his nephew Lot, somehow found it fit to heed the command to set Isaac on the altar, a near-death experience again averted only by way of the intercession of a well-timed angel. So horrified, the rabbis explained, was Sarah at her husband's willingness to sacrifice her only son that she herself died of heartache. So traumatized was Isaac by the whole experience that he never spoke to his father again. An angel may have saved his life, but the relationship between father and son was sacrificed at the top of Mount Moriah. It's not the only way to tell the story of our people's first family, but given that Isaac and Ishmael went on to give life to two nations, the Jewish and the Arab one, it's a telling that of late cuts close to home. Two brothers of shared lineage and shared claim to a land. Two brothers estranged from one another, estranged from their parents and from God's promise. A tragedy of the generations filled with distrust, violence, heartache, and the hardening of hatreds. A tragedy whose ripple effects play out to this very day. Bleak as our story is, it is in this week's Torah reading that we find a redemptive sliver, a hint of possibility, a glimmer of hope in an otherwise dark tale. As noted, following the trauma of Mount Moriah, Abraham and Isaac never speak again. The father and son who went up the mountain together go down separately. Abraham, the text states, goes to Beersheba. But where did Isaac go? The answer comes this week in the scene where Isaac returns to meet his bride, Rebecca, and the text says, and Isaac returned from Be'er Lechai Ro'i, for he had settled in the region of the Negev. Where is Be'er Lechai Ro'i, the rabbis ask, and what exactly was Isaac doing there? It was, according to the rabbis, the home of Hagar, the well, the Be'er, one and the same as the one that saved Hagar when she almost perished. Why would Isaac, who no doubt suffered the post-traumatic effects of being nearly killed by his father, who himself was mourning the death of his mother Sarah, go and see Hagar, the woman who by a certain telling he had every right to resent? Why? The rabbis teach because Isaac wanted to reunite his stepmother Hagar with his biological father Abraham. It's an astonishing turn of events. What courage it must have taken for Isaac to approach Hagar. The very thought that Isaac's first act of personal agency in the wake of his own trauma was to reunite Hagar with his father. Even more astonishing is to consider Hagar. How brave it must have been for her to not only receive Isaac, but to follow him back. The hatreds she must have had to wrestle with, considering that from her perspective, it was the rival of Isaac in the first place that prompted her exile. But that, according to the rabbis, is exactly what happened. After all these years, 
Hagar returns and remarries Abraham. Our broken first family, less broken. For all the trauma, bitterness, and pain, somehow these people bring it together and find hope in the darkness. History may not repeat itself, but biblical history can rhyme, at least for rabbis, especially when it comes to the eponymous forefathers of our present-day nations. As a rabbi inclined to see nuance, texture, and gray area, the events of October 7th has brought me, and I hope you, moral clarity. I reject any attempt by anyone to put the atrocities of October 7th in the context of the wider arc of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. I reject any attempt by anyone to suggest Israeli complicity in October 7th by way of a perverse, nobody's hands are clean argument. I reject any suggestion that Israel does not have a right to protect its citizens, to respond to being attacked, and defend its citizens from future attacks. And I reject that Israel is not well within its rights to do what it needs to do to bring the over 240 hostages back to their families. I reject any such arguments, period, full stop. I know how I feel. Like the characters of our Torah reading, I feel loss, betrayal, anger, resentment, trauma, and a whole lot of other uncomfortable feelings. And, like any mourner going through the stages of grief, I ask, even and especially with things as recent, raw, and real-time as they are, what exactly is the plan for tomorrow and the day after that? Because I grieve over the victims of October 7th. I also grieve over the loss of innocent Palestinian lives, betrayed as they are by the iron grip of Hamas. Not to do so is inhuman. I do not sleep at night at the thought of the well-being of my nephew and his battalion who are stationed in Gaza. I also do not sleep at the thought of all of the Gazans caught in the crossfire of war. I shed tears thinking of the endless and compounding cycles of generational violence. I'm pretty sure I know how I feel right now. And I'm doubly sure that this feeling is not a feeling that I want to last for the rest of my life and into the lives of my children and grandchildren, which is why I think we need to muster within ourselves individually and as a people a little bit of our forefather Isaac. We need a way to verbalize and actualize a strategy forward, a Marshall Plan, if you will, that will help build a future of coexistence, provide political stability, contain extremism, and reward good behavior. Israel has every right to do what it needs to do. Hamas is not a rational actor, and any vision of shared future has to be with a partner that countenances Israel as part of the future, something that Hamas does not do. But Israel must allow and encourage that partner to emerge. 
As has been argued by a recent speaker in our community, Israel should consider Great Britain's strategy of the 1990s vis-a-vis Northern Ireland. On the one hand, Britain made clear by way of its military strength that the path of terrorist violence would fail. On the other hand, Britain made clear by way of a second track of diplomacy that there was a path by which the IRA could achieve more at the negotiating table than on the battlefield. There are, I am sure, limits to the analogy, but the point is one of both moral and practical significance. Morally, Israel's response to the attacks of October 7th remains defensible if and only if Israel pursues a path to Palestinian self-determination with the same ferocity as it prosecutes its war on Hamas. Practically, Israel must provide a path for Palestinian self-determination because no matter what one does or doesn't think about the Palestinians, our sanity, our humanity, and our love for a secure Jewish democratic state demands it. I'm under no illusions that the once estranged members of our people's first family grew to like each other. I'm I'm not even so sure that in their heart of hearts, they even forgave each other. I think they just realized that by some cruel twist of fate, their histories, geographies, and destinies were going to be tied to each other. So they figured out how to make it work and live side by side. They figured it out, and so must we. Our Torah reading, as noted, begins with the story of mourning. Abraham caring for Sarah by way of a purchase of a burial plot known as a cave of Machpelah. Less well-known is how our Torah reading ends, a final touching scene, this time the death of our patriarch Abraham himself. The text is terse, there is no dialogue, the text only stating that Abraham arrived at the ripe age of 175 and that he was buried by his two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, at the cave of Machpelah. I think of those two brothers. Isaac and Ishmael standing over their father's grave, standing on that plot of land that he purchased, reflecting on the hurts inflicted on them and the hurts that they inflicted upon each other, the hatreds that they had to suppress, the bitter pills that they had to swallow, the things they knew that they would have to let go. Somehow, they were able to work it out, or at least work it out enough so that they could civilly bury their father, acknowledge themselves as brothers to the same father, each deserving of blessing each claimants to the same land. Isn't that, on a certain level, what it means to mourn? To remember the hurt, to hold the pain, to know that try as you might, you will never transcend loss, but you must nevertheless find a way to put one foot in front of the other. It's not everything. It might not even be much of something, but maybe, just maybe, it's a place to start. And God knows we are all in need of a place to start. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, 
Check out PASYN.org. See you in shul. Hallelujah, Elbeck, Hallelujah.